0: Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or, you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com Diffusion
1: The the International Science Radio Show
0: We have a bouncer and the doors of perception The good, the bad, the ugly It gets pretty exciting The myths, the truths Toxicology, astro seismology. Magnetism, the Dark Side, Genetically
1: Engineered Potatoes, Planetoid,
0: Planetoid,
1: I love that word. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolf. On this edition, synthetic biology and de-extinction. But first up, Here's the news. Genetically Modified Humans Chinese scientists from Sun Yat-sen University in Guangzhou have edited the genomes of human embryos using the CRISPR-Cas9 precise gene editing technology. They modified a gene responsible for an often fatal blood disorder called beta-thalassemia. The ability to edit out genetic diseases would have a huge impact on the lives of people who would have been born with inherited diseases, and for their children. On the one hand, it would be wonderful because they wouldn't have to suffer the diseases. But on the other hand, it could be terrible, because unexpected harmful consequences might not show up until later generations. They made sure any problems they introduced wouldn't affect any children or children's descendants by only modifying embryos from fertility clinics that would have died because they weren't naturally viable. They could never have been born. CRISPR-Cas9 is short for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeat-Associated System. The enzyme complex CRISPR-Cas9 binds and splices DNA at specific locations. It can be programmed to target a problematic gene, which is then replaced or repaired by another molecule introduced at the same time. It's very precise. CRISPR-Cas9 is very well understood in human adult stem cells and animal embryos. But, until now, there were no reports of its use in human embryos. If the team could replace a single disease gene in a single cell embryo, then, in theory, all the cells produced in the developing embryo would have the repaired gene. This is known as germline therapy because the changes they make to the genes could be inherited if the embryos went to a live birth, grew to adults, and had children. This is why they're making sure that couldn't happen. The fertilized eggs they got from the fertility clinics had been fertilized with two sperms instead of one, so they had an extra set of chromosomes. This means that they would develop for the first few stages of life, but never survive to go on to live birth. The team targeted the HBB gene, which encodes the human beta-globin protein. Mutations in the HBB gene are responsible for beta-thalassemia. They injected 86 embryos with CRISPR-Cas9 and the fixed gene, and then waited two days. This gave the enzyme time to replace the mutated genes. The embryos grew to eight cells, but not all the embryos survived. They tested 54 of the survivors, and found that only 28 had successfully included the healthy HBB gene. This is too low a success rate. For the technique to be useful in normal embryos that could be born, it needs to fix 100% of the embryos. They also observed a lot of extra mutations in other parts of the embryo's genes. Critics have pointed out that the low success rate in the extra mutations may simply be a result of the fact that they started with abnormal embryos. Unfortunately, because nobody has done the experiment with normal embryos, nobody has any basis for comparison. The team respond to the critics by claiming that abnormal human embryos are closer to how normal human embryos would respond than animal embryo experiments could show. No informed conversations could take place on these issues without this kind of data, they say. The team's next step is to try and reduce the number of extra mutations by using the technique on adult human stem cells and animal embryos, and also trialing a new, more precise technique called TALEN. The paper was published in the journal Protein and Cell, entitled and CRISPR-Cas9-mediated gene editing in human tripronuclear zygotes. <music> You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet. On www.diffusionradio.com Dr. Michael Molitor is a visiting professor in the International Energy Program at Sciences Po in Paris. He gave a talk at the University of Technology Sydney's School of Business about synthetic biology as a disruptive platform for innovation. I was granted five minutes to chat with him before his talk. I began by asking him, what is synthetic biology?
1: synthetic biology is a combination of computer science biology and engineering and it's the ability to make synthetic life at all orders of organization from synthetic genes to synthetic chromosomes to synthetic
0: organisms and what effect is this technology going to have on the world and the market
1: well if you consider the way we produce food for example or even energy uh it takes a huge amount of capital, it takes a huge amount of energy, and it takes a huge amount of natural resources. And is, they're not scalable. Right? So biology has had two billion years to figure out how to do those things. Um, so what we can do is we can capture the efficiencies that, that biology has created with a different code. So instead of using a binary computer code of zeros and ones, we use a, a code with four letters, uh, the four base pairs, uh, four, uh, nucleotides of, of DNA. And we can construct uh, new life forms doing that. The implications are enormous for energy, for food, for chemicals. Uh, It's the potential to change everything.
0: And do you think there will be some of the resistance to synthetic biology foods that there has been to genetically modified foods?
1: Uh, there's, there's no question. We're already beginning to see the groups in Europe and other places that are very vocal on GMOs, they're very concerned that, that this, this trend is going to be creating, this, this emerging field is going to be creating a huge variety of unusual genetically modified organisms that we're going to be ingesting. I don't necessarily take that view. I, I think the biggest promise for us in the food space isn't making new organisms that we will eat, but making new organisms that will make food exactly like we currently eat. So for example, instead of using a cow to make milk, right, use genetically modified yeast to make milk. Now, you're not going to be eating the yeast. It's genetically modified. You're going to be eating milk proteins that will be absolutely identical to what a cow produces.
0: Surely it's a lot more ethical to take the animals out of the loop.
1: Yeah. I mean, a, a, absolutely. I mean, you know, you can think of not only milk, you can think of almost any form of animal protein. You know, you can synthesize any of those and you can create microbes to produce all of those. So when you think about the ethical treatment of animals from from veal, uh, you know, there's lots of examples from, you know, billions of chickens in little tiny coops laying eggs all day. Um, you know, if you can, if you can uh, dramatically improve that, both in terms of the cost and as well as the, the, the efficiency, then of course you've got lots of co-benefits including animal welfare
0: do you have an opinion on the movement to try and grow meat in vitro
1: look one thing that's clear is that clearing more and more land to to place more cattle uh, and to convert plant protein into animal protein using cows is highly inefficient it's super inefficient uh, and it's no longer scalable so if we decide that we want to continue eating meat um, it doesn't make sense to have cows make it for us and other animals because it diverts way, way too many resources. Uh, our ability to produce those or get organisms to produce that those proteins um, will be significantly more efficient. Now, will people want to eat a Wagyu burger that is created by, by microbes that tastes exactly like uh, Wagyu? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, that's not my, uh, that's not my field of expertise. But clearly, one thing I do know is we can't continue with the current system it's it's just way too inefficient
0: and will there be synthetic biology effects in the energy sector and with our climate change issues
1: yeah although we've had a several problems with in the energy sector and lots of large investors have lost money in the, in the biofuel space i i absolutely believe that we will see dramatic improvements in that in that technology and focus in synthetic biology um, to the extent that you know we're going to be we're going to be using bugs to make fuel as opposed to investing in in bugs that produce more oils or sugars to put in a billion dollar refinery. So bugs to fuel is already here and I I believe it's going to take off.
0: What are some of the things that's happening with synthetic biology right now that people might not realise is already on the market?
1: So there's, there's a company called Mufri M-U-U-F-R-I, um, and so they've identified that portion of a cow's genome, which allows it to produce these essential milk proteins, and they've genetically modified yeast. So they've added new genes to yeast, and those yeasts are fermenting milk proteins. That's a product on the market. And there are two companies that are, now have genetically modified bugs that are directly producing fuel. So these bugs secrete, for example, jet fuel or diesel. Right? Um, quite amazing.
0: And that would be carbon neutral jet fuel, wouldn't it?
1: Yes. I mean, you know, if if you uh, if you consider that they're going to be cycling carbon that's already in the atmosphere, and, and if that's your definition of carbon neutrality, then in fact this becomes this becomes a carbon neutral fuel. So that question's a bit more complex. It is a bit, It is a bit more complex. Look, I, I think. Th- we created most of our wealth in the last 40 years on the back of IT. So we either cre- we created a massive IT industry, and because IT also gave us an economic uplift in almost every other sector. So the basis of all economic growth in the last 30, 40 years has been IT. But we can think of that IT as digital IT, right? It's, it's a binary code that we've created a series of zeros and ones. We're gonna to move to BIT, biological um, uh, IT, uh, and I, I believe this is a, uh, an economic growth platform, significantly larger than than, than what we could now call IT. For two reasons: one, the, the the tools that we're playing with, the four letters of code as opposed to two uh, numbers, and the our ability to manage information is significantly more complex. And at the end of the day, that's ultimately what we're talking about. So I, I'm I it's. We're in a period equivalent to the 70s and 80s where you had rapidly falling costs, uh, Moore's law, and hackers around the world on software and hardware. We have biohackers all over the world now. And the costs of doing synthetic biology are falling faster than Moore's law.
0: Well, Dr. Molitor, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That was Dr. Michael Molitor talking about synthetic biology. After the interview, Dr. Molitor gave his talk on synthetic biology as a disruptive platform for innovation. I'm going to summarize his talk and expand where it gets to de extinction. He began by stating that synthetic biology is the only platform for generating growth at scale, to get exponential returns. That got my attention. Exponential returns is what Ray Kurzweil talks about in his book, The Singularity Is Near as the way for humans to transcend our age-old problems of death and poverty with technological abundance. Economists talk of a need to be tripling global world production from $60 trillion in 2010 to $305 trillion by 2050. We need to be more productive to look after all the people, without using up the rest of our natural resources, so we need exponential returns. Most wealth in the 20th and 21st centuries comes from exploiting physics. Moore's law describes how the speed of computers doubles every year and a half, while the price stays the same, because the number of transistors we can fit on a chip for the same price increases. It was formulated by Gordon Moore, who went on to found the Intel Corporation. He knows a thing or two about chips. Innovation was also due to the rise of hackers, hobbyists who play with the technology to stretch it past its limits and make it do very new things. And the development of uniform code. You can plug in different computer parts together and write software in standardized languages that will run on almost any computer. And now, biology is a new platform for generating wealth. It's better than the IT platform because its information flow is more robust and the biological version of Moore's Law is the Carlson Curve. The Carlson curve is the doubling of performance and halving of cost of biotechnology as measured in how fast you can sequence a genome for how much. It's currently five times faster than Moore's Law. And where computing had hackers, synthetic biology has biohackers. The machines for sequencing genes, the polymerase chain reaction PCR machines, cost a million dollars each just five years ago. Today they cost $1,000 each. In five years, they will likely be $100 each. At the website genomecompiler.com, their slogan is Genetic Engineering Made Easy. They offer a free online designing toolkit for do-it-yourself genetic engineering. And then, for a price, the company can synthesize your genes and deliver them. It currently costs about $5,000 to build your own synthetic biology lab. There are community biohacker spaces popping up all over the world. For example, the BioFoundry has been established in Alexandria, in Sydney. You can check out biofoundry.org.au to organise a tour or join up. Smaller and cheaper gene sequencing devices are coming out, such as crowdfunded USB sticks with a pool for samples that sequence DNA in minutes. In France, the Minion is a chunky USB stick gene sequencer under development. And in the USA, mini-PCR has raised $66,000 on Kickstarter, selling the small gene sequencing devices to backers for $400 each. Dr. Molitor says searching with the keywords DIY bio or garage bio will find all the biohacker references you need online. He then gave some great examples. Currently, nootkatone, the molecule that gives grapefruit its scent and flavor, is expensive at $5 per gramme. Valencine from oranges is cheap and plentiful, so a company has engineered bacterial enzymes to add one oxygen atom to valencine and remove two hydrogens to turn it into noot They just add the orange essence to a vat, let the GMO bacteria ferment it, and then harvest the grapefruit essence. Grapefruit essence is a powerful but harmless insect repellent. At the right price, it could replace the toxic DET that would otherwise stay in the environment without breaking down. He went on to suggest that with cheap and easy access to the precise gene manipulation technology of synthetic biology, we could solve many of the health problems that are caused by bacteria that live on and in the human body with unpleasant effects, such as acne, tooth decay, and underarm odor. We just need to take samples of the bacteria, engineer out the parts that cause the nasty effects, and then engineer in a harmless benefit that allows the defanged bacteria to outcompete the nasty bacteria. A cream for underarm odour containing genetically modified bacteria that outcompete the natural bacteria but which don't cause unpleasant smells or even causes desirable smells. Bacteria for the face of teenagers that doesn't cause pimples that simply outcompetes the pimple causing bacteria. Mouth bacteria, identical to what you share with your mouth now but which don't cause tooth decay and which crowd out the bacteria which would rot your teeth. Dr. Molitor then went on to the wonderful moo-free synthetic milk, grown from yeast that have synthetic genes based on cow genes that allow it to grow milk proteins without farming any cows. The resulting liquid would have no modified genes and should be very similar to cow's milk. Ultimately, it'll be cheaper. Dr. Molitor ran through some more examples very quickly. Agnol, bugs to make fuel in ways that are far more efficient than simply fermenting corn or sugarcane, with traditional fermenting bacteria. Synthetic artemisin, growing the malaria, treatment and prevention drug from bacteria instead of the difficult-to-grow wormwood plants. Targeted bacterial phages to diagnose cancer. Biological solutions to make hydrogen for fuel, because hydrogen is the most energy-dense liquid we know. And a Vegemite replacement for golden rice. People in the third world have deficiencies in vitamin A, so golden rice was developed. Golden rice was degeni- so golden rice was genetically engineered to provide vitamin A, and Dr. Molitor says they didn't accept it because of its golden color. Perhaps a food like Vegemite that's rich in vitamin A would be acceptable as a new food. And then he got to the more out there stuff with D extinction. Dr. Molitor mentioned he's in contact with a thylacine Tasmanian tiger de-extinction group in Australia, along with a woolly mammoth de-extinction group in Russia, and a Neanderthal de-extinction group in the US. Now, this deserves a little unpacking. The three questions for de-extinction, I would say, would be, why do it? Can we do it? And should we do it? Can you really bring an animal back from extinction? Do you need complete DNA? Does it count if you fill the gaps in the extinct animal's DNA with your living cousin's DNA? What about the culture of the animals? For intelligent animals, from birds to mammals, a lot of how to live is learned from their parents. And there's no parents left. Is it good for the environment? Is it good for the animals? Why would you want to bring back a different species of human? Thylacines, also known as Tasmanian tigers, were a striped, wolf-sized carnivorous marsupial that was driven to extinction in the early 20th century in Tasmania. Ignorant farmers believed that thylacines were savaging their sheep flocks because thylacines looked a lot like wolves. That was the only evidence they had, but it was enough for the Tasmanian government to offer a bounty of one pound per head from 1888 to 1909. It's now known that due to the strength of their jaws, that thylacines couldn't have killed a single sheep. Their jaws were too weak. Most likely the farmer's sheep were being killed by dogs, or simply by incompetence. Tasmania wasn't a great place to grow sheep. The last known specimen of thylacine died in Hobart Zoo in 1936, 59 days after finally becoming a protected species. I can put a link to the video from the zoo online. Thylacine embryos have been preserved in formalin at the Australian Museum and a team led by Michael Archer hoped to bring the thylacine back from extinction using DNA extracted from them. Why do this? Well, we killed them off in ignorance less than 100 years ago. Thylacines feature in rock and cave art all over Australia. They had an important role in the ecology. People still report sightings of them which, if nothing else, shows people want to see them. The closest relatives of the thylacine are the numbat and the Tasmanian devil. They would have to bear the embryos and suckle the young in their pouches. They would have to teach them to survive. We also turn to them to fill in any missing genes. Should we? It would seem to pose little harm to the environment or people, but would it be a good use of resources? It would be a long, complex project to return orphan thylacines to the wild. Would they always be tame? I'll embed Michael Archer's TED Talk on de-extincting thylacines on the show notes. Harvard University geneticist George Church wants to revive the woolly mammoth with DNA from frozen mammoth bodies discovered in Siberian permafrost. He claims to have successfully spliced some mammoth DNA into Asian elephants. Sergey Zimov wants to restore the grasslands that the mammoth used to roam by setting up a park with a type of large herbivores that used to live in that environment during the last Ice Age. Pleistocene Park. 10,000 years ago, mammoths, woolly rhinoceroses, bison, horses, reindeer, musk oxen, elk, moose, saiga and yaks grazed on grasslands under the predatory gaze of cave lions and wolves. He hopes that by restoring the grassland ecosystem, he can put off melting of the permafrost or perhaps stop it altogether. He's fenced off a section of the Arctic and introduced or fostered reindeer, moose, wild horses musk-oxen, hares, marmots, and ground squirrels, along with predators such as wolves, bears, lynxes, wolverines, and foxes. He plans to add Canadian bison, and eventually Siberian tigers. If a mammoth-like elephant is engineered, or an actual mammoth is cloned, then this reserve is where their herds could live. George Church also wants to bring back Neanderthal humans. Why? Because they had larger skulls and therefore might have thought differently and been more intelligent than we Homo sapiens humans. The Neanderthal genome has already been sequenced. It shows that modern humans and Neanderthals coexisted for a long time and interbred. People of European descent have up to 5% of their DNA from Neanderthals. Surely, children deliberately engineered to look and think unpredictably differently from everyone around them are likely to have stressful lives. Look how we already treat people who look and think differently. Church's argument is that we desperately need the diversity. And in that, I could be convinced. George Church also wants to engineer modern humans to be better. He asked what happens when we can modify humans to be incompatible with viruses, so that we become virus-free. Dr. Molitor finished his provocative talk with the question, if you're going to engineer away disease... Why not engineer out human overconsumption and overpopulation while you're at it? You can find Dr. Molitor at Science Po in Paris. Longtime listener Seymour wrote in to ask for a more nuanced interpretation of last week's fairness pill news. His message boils down to reminding us that dopamine is just a messenger molecule, and blaming the messenger is wrong. Any changes in behaviour will come from communication between the groups and neurons that sent the dopamine message and the groups and neurons that received the dopamine message. Thank you, Seymour.
1: Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvellous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.
0: And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network, including two Triple H in Hornsby-Karingai, two MVR in Nambucca Valley, two X in Canberra, and three MBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station, and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for videos, photos and links about this week's show. I'm Ian Wolfe with a slightly croaky throat. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. And to take us out, is Jonathan Colton of jonathancolton.com with That Spells DNA.
2: When mom met dad and they danced all night and he took her home It might have been all the wine they had But they rolled the dice and won your genome Then you grew and you grew and one day you were you And you look like your father and mother If you're looking for someone convenient to blame You can take your pickets one or the other and RNA to the ribosome to make more protein. And while it's killing you dead, it will mess with your head. And it's the light in the dark that will guide you. It's the pages and pages of what you are like in the giant book that's hidden inside you, DNA. If it says T-A-C-A-C-A-T-A-T-C-C-T-C-G-T Then you'll probably wish that you didn't know The time will come when you're almost gone And you try to guess but you'll never Soldier on every day You're here till it's time to go All the good things and bad That you do or don't have You can find out for sure if you got them But there's a spiraling staircase That you're falling down And you're nothing but dead